Growth happens in the challenging and messy parts of life. I never want to stop learning and growing uh, to, to be stretched as a person. Gosh, I believe we grow best in relationship with others, and it's important to never lose sight of the human sitting in front of me. You know, my hope is to always have the hard conversations well. And we need to do a better job of holding space for each other. Asking the difficult questions is important, but I want to do it in a way that has genuine humility and curiosity. One of my favorite phrases is the staying power. And at the end of the day, I want to know that I did that. We need more nuanced dialogue to keep learning. And a part of that is we really need to get better at listening. We are two unique female professionals and friends that have come together to have meaningful conversations and a little fun along the way. Welcome to the Arable Podcast, where curious minds grow. I'm your host, Jenna Mountain. And I'm your other host, Kimberly Galindo. Okay, so um, today on the podcast, I have the joy and privilege to introduce a friend and colleague, um, Ryan and I met in our PhD cohort um, and had a ton of fun over those few years. Ryan uh, way passed me up on finishing things, um, which he will he may or may not tease me about. Uh, Ryan doesn't probably. sleep a lot, so that helps. Ryan, <laughs> so that's yeah. why Ryan finished his PhD before me. Um, but uh, yeah, Ryan, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and uh, just tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm happy to do that. For the record, uh, Jenna, we did meet not just in our doctoral cohort, but on the day we interviewed. And do you know what I remember most about you? Oh gosh, you were I'm afraid only, to say. No, you were the only person. They asked us a question about, I don't remember what the question was about. You were the only person in our cohort who actually voiced an opinion. And then oh. I voiced an opinion. So the first time we met, we were disagreeing about something. And I thought, okay, I'm glad that there's somebody in here who has opinions and is willing well, to you voice know. Them. And and I it's probably why I I do not remember that I have to admit oh, that I but it's probably why I like you because I'm yeah. an Enneagram eight so like yeah. I, you know conflict <laughs> is my my jam I'm I'm here for that <laughs> yeah no I'm with you but people get scared off by that and and you I know. Were, so it made me happy uh, <laughs> so the nickel and dime version of what I do uh, I am currently in private practice I have offices in McKinney and Rockwall um, but for the purposes of our conversation I know we're probably going to be talking more about technology. Uh, than anything else. And so that's probably the background that people care most about. Prior, yeah. to, prior to the whole therapy world and all the magic letters at the end of my name, um, I was a school teacher. Uh, I taught middle school and high school, so the secondary level. Uh, and I was finishing grad school during that window. And then I transitioned into a role as a technology facilitator. So I was kind of on the front lines of um, uh, technology and its integration into the classroom and integration with, with kids. Uh, I finished grad school and then started a clinic in McKinney ISD. I'm sorry, in Mesquite ISD. Uh, we did something similar in McKinney, but I started the clinic in Mesquite ISD. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we did there was uh, family therapy for classroom behavior problems for kindergarten through like fifth grade. Um, so I say that because I want all of the people who might be hearing this to know um, I'm a family therapist who's been working as a marriage counselor. I served as the president of the Texas Association of Marriage and Family Counselors for like six years. 
Um, but I also worked with literally kids at every age level, um, elementary yeah. school in a clinical capacity, middle school and high school as a teacher and also as a counselor. Um, so this has been, it's been a wild ride. Uh, I did, I did my dissertation on the impact of social media on uh, romantic relationships. Uh, mm -hmm. Really, more than anything else, it ended up being a Facebook on how, or being a, a study on how Facebook uh, has impacted marriage. Um, I could give you all 300 pages, but the short version is it ain't good. Ryan, uh, I, I downloaded the 300 pages. Oh, did just, I did not? homework on you. I did. You I was like, one. oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm the one. Good. Well, so all that to say, um, this conversation is going to be rooted in, yeah, my experience in working with, with families, uh, but there's a lot of academic research that went into uh, the dissertation and went into trying to understand from more than just an anecdotal perspective, try to understand uh, from a statistical, from a neurobiological perspective, mm -hmm. um, how technology has impacted our, our functioning. Um, and now... Uh, well, prior to COVID, so like up until March, <laughs> what I did most of my with most of my time was I would travel to different school districts um, around Texas and actually outside of Texas on a few occasions, um, and would do presentations on technology and families, and then the neurobiological impact of technology on little kids, which I know sounds super boring, uh, but it's it's really not interesting. if you have those little humans in your house. It's oh yeah, not I got boring. two of them. Yeah, well, and yeah. I've got two of them. I've got an uh, almost nine year old and a just turned five year old. Uh, so this has been more than just an academic interest for me. Um, I got kids who are impacted by this and I have a marriage that's impacted by this. So I wanted to know as much about it as I could. Yeah, I think you're being humble, Ryan. Um, I'm going to jump back to the program that you started at Mesquite. I, I think, uh, so I am married to a school teacher, um, which is probably another reason why I liked you a lot in the beginning. So I was like, gosh, he just, I just know that world that he is. Um, sure surviving if I may. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, the program that you started, I, you know, I have watched in the educational realm, people really try to figure out how to address the mental health concerns and the behavioral right. concerns and education. And, you know, this is not a podcast to explore all the challenges in education K through 12. Um, but not a lot of people have been successful. And I think the world is still trying to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And your program was phenomenal. I mean, it Thank is you. really, I really do consider it uh, pioneering. And, and I know that you had the data to back up that it was working. Absolutely. And so I wish, I wish more people would take that model and replicate it. It's, it's hard. Well, so it's hard because, and this is a good starting point for this conversation. Um, you know what happened when we, now we had a, a metric, we had a, a test that we measured a couple of different battery of tests that we measured uh, progress with our kids. Mm -hmm. 80%, just shy of 80% of our kids went from clinical in their, in their rule breaking behavior or defiant behavior, just under 80% went from clinical to non-clinical um, over the course of our program. And, and that's crazy. That data is insane. You know what that data says? And this is what I want a good, again, a good starting point for this conversation. When you involve the family in the solution, um, things change. Yep. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of school districts struggle. And I think that's where my message, again, to, to start this conversation about technology, my message is not easy. My, uh, my, my, my parenting book is not going to sell very well because I'm going to ask parents to work hard. Uh, oh, I'm going to yeah. ask parents to be really engaged. Um, and the easiest way to sell a book in this culture is to write a book telling parents that they have to do less uh, and that it's fine. Just let their kids do what they're going to do. And then we'll deal with the fallout later. Um, my program's not easy. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I don't, I don't think that's just for parenting. I think that's for like, if you want to sell a book, tell them how to, people want to know what the secret sauce or the shortcut is. And yeah, that's exactly there's right. just not one sometimes. Correct. Hey, Ryan, can you tell us a little bit about what you specifically did in the schools, what the program looked mm-hmm. like when you uh, yeah. launched the program and how you gathered the data and just paint us a picture there of that work? Okay. Sure. So um, when our kids got sent to alternative placement, which is a DAEP placement, if you know the public school system, when they got sent to an alternative placement, now we couldn't mandate it, but our kids were all given the option um, on the intake. So when they, we would meet with parents and explain, here's what happens here at the alternative school. And if they were elementary age, they were given the option to come and see me. Uh, it was no charge to the parents. Um, and they got to work with me as long as they committed to come in every week. They would work with me as long as necessary. Um, and we would work through a program of helping them identify uh, behaviors in their kids that were problematic to help us figure out maybe where some of the home um, uh, patterns of behavior started and changing those. And the goal was really um, we wanted to try and change family dynamics and family behaviors in a positive way so that the kids would go to school and, and have the ability to function in a more productive way. Uh, the analogy that I gave people was for a lot of years, teachers have been trying to put out um, kids' fires when they come to school, and then they send them home to the same burning building and then are surprised the next day when they come back still on fire. Um, and so my job was to go in and try to put out the fire at home um, so that when the kid came to school, they had a much calmer, much more structured environment at home so that some of that anxiety that they brought into the classroom uh, went away and some of those attention-seeking behaviors, um, which, by the way, most misbehaviors for little kids is attention-seeking behavior. Um, and you know, what's weird when they feel like they're getting that attention at home, uh, and it's positive, healthy attention, they don't come to school and rip off dry erase boards. Mm. Yeah. So tracking the data was as simple as we had a a very extensive, now we started off with this super involved, uh, uh, measure that we would have the homeroom teachers and the parents fill out together, uh, not working together, but fill out at the same time. Um, there was a parent version and a kid version, and then, we would work with them for about two months and then retest them, have parents and, and, and teachers fill out the same form. Um, and the, the data was crazy. Uh, and granted, some of it, I, I remember having uh, somebody ask me one time, do you think some of the data may be skewed because they know that the kid's getting help? And so now the teachers are looking at them with more compassion, to which my response was, yeah, but that's awesome. If, if what yeah. we did was just created a situation where the, where the parents began to understand, wait a minute. My, this kid's not a bad kid. This kid has a home environment that is is creating a lot of these situations and it's no one's fault. It's not on purpose, um, but m- my kid's not a bad kid. I'll give you a perfect snapshot of why we did what we did. I got a call one day of one of my kids who had rattled off a string of very creative profanity uh, <laughs> to her to her kindergarten teacher. I mean, I'm talking upper level AP profanity, right? Uh, <laughs> that it was all used in the correct context, which for a kindergartner, that's hard to do. Um, so on my way to the school and the, the principal had had it, I mean, was done with this kid and was telling me essentially that I'm done with this kid. On my way to the school, I called the parent and said, hey, here's what just happened. Um, the parent immediately started crying and said, let me tell you what happened last night. And then she proceeded to tell me about a fight that she, the mother, had had with another family member. And then she rattled off what had been said. And it was a verbatim text of what this child had said to her teacher. 
I go to the school, I meet with the principal, I tell the principal, hey, let me tell you about the phone call I just got. And I mean, instantly, that fast, the te- the principal went from done to, oh, you poor child, how can I help? And it was amazing to see that transition yeah. Yeah. with one piece of information. Well, I love how here, and, and you know, those of us who are clinicians will take this for granted a little bit, but that systemic perspective of it's not just the child in isolation, right. it's every part of their system. Right that influences and then will help aid and heal an experience. And when we can have that whole perspective, how it shifts everything. You know, what's weird. I worked with over the five years that I ran that clinic. And by the way, the clinic is still, it grew and has grown since Uh, I'm still connected to them. I left to do some, cause I had some, I had the next thing I wanted to start building, Um, Mm -hmm. but, but they're still growing. And I'll tell you in the, in the five years that I ran that clinic, um, we saw about 4,000 kids, um, no sociopaths. It's weird. None of them were, really? none of them hmm. were terrible children with no hope mm-hmm. for the future. All of them were, were the products of exactly what I would have expected them to be given the systemic world in which they lived. And so when we can change some of that, changing kids was super easy. Well, and I- Ryan, Kimberly and I, as clinicians, both were, I always tell people I don't work with kids, but I work with kids that grew up. Yeah, there you go. um, Because I work with adults and, um, but we're oftentimes um, looking at those childhood experiences and um, it it just never fails that it is just um, riddled with labels um, about that child was trying to creatively get a need met Mm -hmm. that wasn't being met. And then they were labeled as, and I can the list and the creativity by the adults in these kids' lives to blame and shame that child in this way. So yes. Okay. So everybody call Ryan when this is done and get this started in your school because it is incredible. Okay. I'm going to transition us into technology because that's really what we want uh, to talk about here. Um, so whether by way of your dissertation or your professional and clinical practice, um, let's start with like just a general bird's eye view of technology. Like what have you learned and observed as far as the rise and increase um, in technology and social media in our lives as a society and culture? Oh, wow. Um, that was probably, hey, it is the bird's eye view. That's the that's the 30,000 foot view of it. Um, the impact that it's had on our day-to-day functioning simply can't be uh, understated or undervalued. So the idea for a long time was that technology was a piece of our lives. It was a piece of our relationships. Um, and that was it at this point now in 2020, I think it's, it's more than a piece. I think it, it defines in a lot of ways, our relationships, it defines the way we view the world. Um, and it defines our expectations. Um, so we'll get into in, in probably more detail as we go through this conversation, we'll get into the um, the science behind it. Um, so I'll, I'll expound upon this in a bit, but the biggest takeaway that I've had in my research in my clinical research and in my conversations with clients over the years is that the, the, the neurobiological impact on our, on our, um, uh, on our living, uh, from our social media and from our devices is shocking. Um, I can show you with science and with neurobiology, this is not anecdotal evidence of just a therapist who really thinks people should all like each other more. Um, I can give you neurobiological evidence that our devices, specifically our phones, um, cause us to enjoy our families less. Uh, and they cause us to enjoy our sunrises and sunsets less. And they cause us to enjoy 
the 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 tangible um, analog world less uh, because there's there's no there's no way the world the analog world can keep up with the joy the joy and I'm putting that in quotes I'm air quoting as though you can see my air quotes it's a podcast for um, the listeners there are air quotes being I used. am air quoting joy uh, the joy we're talking about is not the real deep seated sense of joy uh, it's it's science it's dopamine. Um, and so we've, we've given our kids and we've given our couples and our adults, we've given them these little dopamine machines, uh, that completely alter the way they experience reality. Uh, and then, and then expected them to just be cool with that. Uh, so that's my big takeaway. And, and we probably need to have a deeper understanding of what dopamine is. We can do that now, or, or, uh, if you've got a different place you want to go, we can do that. You know, I'm going to keep it high level um, and I'm going to respond and then we're going to go ahead and, you know, call our assistant and have her schedule you for a follow-up podcast. So that, that's how that's going to work. Got it. Um, I, I love that you brought up dopamine. Um, Kimberly and I live in the world of battling the, oh, how do I want to word this, Kimberly? Um, the idolization of that experience in our body and not really understanding the difference because as sex therapists, you know, we will get a lot of couples or individuals just depending on the circumstance that come in and say, I am looking for this experience again. And I can't, you know, I've fallen out of love with my, my partner. I've fallen out of love and this, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there is a way to like remove technology from that equation. Uh, But what we know as sex therapists is dopamine is uh, just this wonderful way of drawing us into infatuation and mating. Um, It's intense. It's like, I always tell couples, it's like riding a Six Flags roller coaster. It's like super intense and goes up and down and draws us toward people. And eventually we mate and then we commit. And then what happens is when the newness wears off, which is why we have this kind of idea of a newlywed phase, um, is actually where the dopamine dips. And you're supposed to be moving into oxytocin lovemaking and bonding and connection. And so we're always trying to pitch this to our couples going, no, 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 you didn't fall out of love and nothing's broken. You have to move into a different type of connection with your person. And so I love that you're bringing up that this is some of the same chemical dynamic that's getting mixed up in technology. Absolutely. Well, and to to take it a step further, so I'm going to, I know the way you just worded it is spot on accurate. Uh, I'm going to sound kind of anti-therapist for a second because I'm going to sound anti-feelings. Sure. That, that, that sentiment of I've fallen out of love with my spouse, you know what else tends to accompany that? Um, I don't feel a certain thing, so I stop behaving a certain way. And so I think sure. we have this backwards relationship of what feelings and actions are supposed to be. So in, in the clinical world, actions oftentimes create feelings. But we, when we're working with clients, especially with married couples, oftentimes it's, well, I don't have a feeling, so I don't want to engage in an action. Part of us as, as adults, and, and thinking, rationalizing adults is we have to understand that, that actions without feelings sometimes are what create the feelings. So when I act like a good husband, it's weird. My wife responds well, and that creates good, happy feelings. Whereas uh, uh, if, I, if I act like a good, happy, connected wife, oftentimes I will create the feelings of a good... Co- you get the idea that we have this backwards relationship, that we don't do anything unless we feel like it. And that's, we sound like very big children when we say that. 
Ryan, are you saying that we need to we need to work harder here? I am. I waiting am. for the feelings to show our, up. Our podcast is not going to sell either. At this I know. See? <laughs> okay, so um, I, I'm going to keep it a little bit slightly. We'll attempt to organize this a little bit. So I want to talk about the the marriage impact first, and then we're going to do families at the latter part yeah. um, of of the interview. So. Um, I want to know, tell us a little bit about, um, as we focus on how technology and social media, um, in fact, impacts romantic relationships, partnerships, marriages. Um, You did your dissertation on this. You mentioned that earlier. Um, I actually want to start by asking you what inspired you to focus on this, because I don't want to assume the obvious, um, because I know you're a real complex thinker. So like, what made you want to get into this? Um, I started to notice, uh, social media and technology really at social media was the, I guess the, 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 the front runner for me, but I started to notice I was having a lot of conversations about technology with the couples I was working with. I was working in private practice. Um, and it wasn't, don't misunderstand. And, and I, I really need, I really need anybody who, who hears me talk about my research to understand that I'm not blaming the technology. Uh, I'm blaming our misuse of it and our misunderstanding of what it does and what it is. Um, it's Absolutely. all it's all us problems. You know, these things aren't inherently bad. You know, Snapchat is not an inherently bad thing, uh, but you can do some bad stuff with it. So, so, but I started to see um, some dysfunctional behaviors in in the in the couples I was working with, and then I started to notice that I was having way more deeper, more interesting conversations with teenagers and young people about their sense of self and about their, their misperceptions of who they were and who they were supposed to be. And when you really started to unpack where some of those beliefs were coming from, it was coming from their exposure to social media. Um, and so that really prompted this interest of like, okay, this is, this has an impact. Now this is for the record, like 2000, 13, 2012. I mean, this is before Mm -hmm. we was where we are now, you know, this is now we're having open dialogue about some of these things, but Jenna, you'll remember this. When I started having this, when I started talking about dysfunctional, uh, thinking of social media being drawn from social media, I was, there were not a lot of voices with that particular message. The first, the first warning, I guess, warning flag presentation I ever did was at the TCA conference in 2011. Um, and I had a lot of people tell me then that, um, they thought I was, I was overthinking it. Yeah. I, I remember the feedback was either general avoidance or anxiety talking to you about this topic, which I feel like was probably our colleagues being nervous about their own use of technology and social media, um, and, or, uh, a defense of it. Like, yeah, like, Mm -hmm. like criticizing that you were, you were overthinking. Yes. Well, and, and also, uh, and I try to avoid this at all costs. I also had, had to avoid the label of the old man screaming at the things that everybody loves. It's really easy <laughs> to be perceived as though, you know, you're trying to take a contrarian approach as some kind of a niche. Um, I got into this, I got into this study because I saw some really dysfunctional stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and it wasn't just, when it got out of the, the clinical room and I started to notice it in the world around me and the people around me and the relationships around me and friends and family, um, it got really, it got really serious. Um, and so that's what prompted me to want to do this. Something is, something is, 
something was very concerning about it and I wanted to know what it was. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that a little bit, Ryan, um, as you think about the relational context, whether professionally or just in your personal life, what was what were you seeing that was destructive about the use of social media and technology within relationship? What What was concerning you as you looked around and you saw dynamics showing up in relationships? What were they that, that continued to spur on your, your research and exploration? Disengagement. Um, when I started, the number one complaint I got from almost everybody about their family members is, I, I, we don't talk. They're always on their phone. And it doesn't, I started, that was, a, that was a complaint that I got a lot from husbands about wives. Well, she's always on Facebook. But then I started to get it about kids. Well, they're always on their devices. And then I started getting it from kids about parents. Well, they're always on their phones. Um, and so it was the disconnect. So um, there was mm-hmm. a... There was a, a, a belief a long time ago about, and you guys are, are I'm sure, familiar with the research, about um, kids getting a head start at a young age because of word acquisition um, and because they heard more words. Um, turns out that wasn't really accurate. It was less, uh, it wasn't the words they heard. It was the conversational pauses within their interactions. So in other words, mm-hmm. kids get a head start not when they hear more words. They get a head start when they're talked to more. Um, and so what I started to notice was an alarming amount of disconnect because it's just so much easier to dive into my cell phone than it is to dive into an awkward conversation with somebody or to constantly engage with my kids. Um, the number one complaint I get about parents from kids, and it doesn't matter what age they are. The number one complaint I get is that they're always on their phone. Um, Mm -hmm. and so it was that level of disengagement. That's what really jumped out off the page at me. And it sounds like, you know, again, kind of some of the things we were talking about earlier, this, it's the path of least resistance. This phone doesn't really get in conflict with me and it doesn't get confusing or nuanced or gray. Um, And so that's easy. And I think about, gosh, the developmental skills that, that, you know, kiddos and adolescents are missing out on, on that. You talked about just the relational pauses and conversation and nuance to that, that, um, is difficult. It's tense, yeah. you know, uh, at times, um, or or messy or hard to understand. And so, what we learn and gain in that um, it, it is, yes, connection. But so many of those powerful developmental skills that kiddos are gaining mm-hmm. are being lost if it's just engagement with technology. Well, and mm-hmm. so it, I can take it. There's another. There was another one too that honestly, um, I don't go into with everybody. But um, I am just I'm reminded that you two are sex therapists. So let's talk about mm-hmm. that for a second. I also yep. I also started to notice the absolute murderous effect of digital technology on the sex lives of the married people that I was working with. Um, you know what's interesting? So I'm going to speak from a man's perspective about pornography for just a second. You know what's interesting yeah. about pornography? I don't have to woo it. I don't have to like, I don't have to be nice. Oh no, it. it's very easy. I don't have to be nice to it. I don't have to like, uh, I don't have to like uh, make sure that I check in about how its day was. Uh, I don't have to make sure that we're, we're mutual participants in the experience. And that is the story for every man. And in addition to that, um, so the effect of pornography on married uh, sex lives has been devastating. Um, very. The only, the only demographic that it's been more devastating for is adolescent boys. Um, now, granted, that's not an exclusive problem of adolescent boys. Adolescent girls are increasingly exposed to pornography yeah. and engaging with pornography. But just from an adolescent boy perspective, um, for a lot of kids that I worked with, 
the only messages they were getting about what sex was supposed to be was from their phones. Um, so you can imagine the incredibly warped perspective that they had on mm-hmm. what women want, what women expect, and how they're supposed to behave. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I will tell you, I had, I had one of the most eye-opening conversations I ever had was with a teenager um, who had been accused of being sexually aggressive. Now, there hadn't been a crime committed, but had been overly sexually aggressive uh, with a young lady and was seeing me as a result of that particular incident. Mm-hmm. Um, the most eye-opening part of that conversation was looking at this kid's face and real recognizing that he truly and sincerely did not understand what he had done wrong. Um, and when we really got into why, it was because all of his messages about sex had been coming from mm-hmm. these really messed up places online. Um, mm-hmm. And so he would, was legitimately interested in what part of his aggression had been offensive. Um, that was eye-opening. Yeah, and I, one of my favorite, um, and I'm going to mess this up. I believe it is, is it Marty Klein? Um, I'll edit this out if I if it's not. But uh, I, I, he, I, a really well-known, prominent, proficient systems therapist who is openly pro-porn, um, uh, so kind of from that secular perspective, if you will, yeah. like, Hey, p- p- porn is net neutral. Um, and that professional would still say that that porn is bad sex education mm-hmm. and, and that that's really, if there's a problem with it, that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and if we think about it, Jenna, what you were describing earlier with couples that we see and, and their sexual experiences. So the dopamine decreases. We get a shot of dopamine in this thing called technology. We get it through pornography. The path of resistance. The the equation is just a setup for relational disconnect and and failure. And and I can just see all the stats, you know, of of divorce and breaking up and disconnection that happened because there's this little formula that you can just follow. Mm -hmm. um, Because it's the path of of easy, you know, it it don't have to work. And, and when you say that, Kimberly, my mind's just going 100 miles an hour. The path of easy doesn't call us into vulnerability. Vulnerability is feeling the risk and the challenge before you. Um, and so we become risk averse in those situations. And then we stop wanting to, again, I, I, like I hear and agree, like it is so much easier to have sex with porn than sex with a person. Um, that, that is, we are in agreement in this, in this conversation, but I also am watching like it, it, it is anti-developmental in calling us into attachment and vulnerability, which is hard. Um, we feel that, um, I always try to tell the people that I work with, whether it's couples, it's like, there is no risk-free relationship. You do not get to control the other side of the equation. And it is in that moment of risk that this, you either determine that this is unsafe and you go to fear and you remove yourself and you make a decision, or you decide that this could be intimacy and you actually move into vulnerability because you, you are not, you are being seen, you are being known. And there is a felt sense of that, that that we are moving away from developing an ability to do that when when we move towards porn for uh, release and dopamine and and all of those things. Yep. Just curious if in your research with relationships and technology, did you find anything positive? I mean, we're hearing the challenges and they make a lot of sense. Yeah. But 
that did you stumble upon see anything did it show anything positive yeah um, yes so um it seems like if, if you're talking about the destructive nature of technology and social media on family relationships the farther the farther you get away from the nuclear family the more advantages are created um so for example uh i'm not I'm not blind to the fact that cousins can stay in touch with each other and who don't live in states because they're connected to each other on social media. Um, so there are, you know, grandparents and their extended family and, and friendships. Um, the idea, and it's something that's so odd for me to wrap my brain around, but the idea that you'll disconnect from people as time goes on is kind of an antiquated concept. My kids don't really have an understanding of that because you can always stay connected somehow. Um, so the, yeah, the advantages of being able to stay connected to each other and to get, um, you know, information about family and friends, all the basics to all the arguments of like, well, no, this is why social media is great are valid. They're all fair. Uh, they didn't in my mind outweigh the, uh, the kind of devastating, uh, uh, intimacy effects of it, but, but the advantages were absolutely still there. Um, there was also a bonding experience that I got to tell you, it, to me personally, felt a, a little weird. But 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 I and I say that only because I, I'm I, I, this was science and I and I trust where we landed, even if I didn't like where we landed. And one of the things that 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 jumped off the page in the research was there was a bonding experience in collectively sharing a romantic relationship digitally. So for example, um, having a married couple who wants to share personal stuff together when it was a, a unified, I'm going to post this, you post this, and we'll tag each other and then talk. There was intimacy building in that. Um, in addition mm -hmm. to that, uh, dating relationships, something that was really interesting there was uh, the ability to move the intimacy forward through digital means was true as well. Uh, so in other words, I'm in a, the relationship status, right? The relationship status, or I'm in pictures where I tag the person I'm dating and the person I'm with. Those were all, it's sexual dynamics, it's sexual politics, uh, but it was, they were all advantages. Uh, they were ways to, to portray your relationship to the public square uh, in, a, in an intimacy building type of way. So the, the whole, it's not official until it's Facebook official it. kind of dynamic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I want to know your personal opinion. I, you're, you're letting the science stand. I appreciate no, it. it, is but like, it is. My personal, okay. where does it, where does it strike you as, as I don't know, odd, okay. not, not landing, whatever it is. So the dating part, um, the dating part, I kind of get, but I also, I worry, uh, especially with young men, um, there is a tendency towards, being territorial in relationships um, and that creating a dysfunctional dynamic. Um, you know, the story of teenage guys and, and guys in their guys who are still in that brain development phase. So basically every male under the age of 25 being, mm -hmm. being <laughs> jealous and being territorial and being restrictive and controlling of uh, their romantic partner uh, again, I know that's not exclusive to guys. Don't get me wrong, but that's the data would say that it's more prevalent in guys than it is in girls. Um, that the digital connection creates an environment for that to take place, um, mm. and so to me that makes it a little weird. And secondarily, so let's move beyond the immature phases in a relationship. Um, mm -hmm. As a as a as a married couple, it's hard. You've been married a long time. Um, 
I don't want you to become reliant on external validation uh, to feel as though your relation mm. matters uh, or to feel as though an experience matters. I want you and me to enjoy uh, a romantic evening without feeling like it only counted if people saw it and liked it and, and then commented. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you really, you can really cheapen intimacy by making it public like that. Um, and if, and if you've got a couple who collectively says, well, we like it together when, when we put our relationship online for other people to experience and for other people to give their thoughts, I don't know, that feels, that feels like you've invited the world into your intimacy. And now it's a, it's a tricycle instead of a bicycle. Um, and tricycles are, are less stable than bicycles, which I know is a weird thing with physics, but it is. Tricycles are less stable. And so um, I don't like that. I don't like bringing in the outside world as a, as a, as a functioning member of our relationship. Yeah. I, I'm just curious if it's less about um, the choice of including technology, the third wheel, if you will. Yeah. And it's more about the intimacy is actually that they are making a shared choice that is mutual, consenting, yep. they enjoy an activity together. And we've gotten distracted in the fact that it's in the technology bucket, sure. but it's actually they're doing what we know is good for couples in general anyway, Absolutely. like a shared activity that they agree upon. And, and I understand like culturally societal, yep. like we might attribute that to technology yep. and it still may have the risk that you're concerned with. Yeah. But really, we could draw couples' focus back to, hey, it's not that you did technology together. It's that you did something together. Absolutely. It's that you share a core value. It's that you, you know, you're having an activity together. No, I, I think that's absolutely fair. And, it's, and it's, uh, it's in these moments where I have to continue to say out loud that I, I do have a bias towards um, uh, using technology as that bonding experience, but no, you're hundred percent right. The fact that it is a, it is a, um, it's a bonding experience separate and apart from what that bonding experience is, uh, is certainly, certainly relevant. Mm -hmm. What would you encourage couples to consider based on your research and all of this information from your work? Um, okay. <clears throat> so are we talking couples, families, or are we doing, we just put them all in the same basket. Uh, we're staying in romantic relationships right now. Okay. So if we're going to stay in romantic relationships, um, what I would encourage couples to do are, are a couple of very, a few very simple things. Uh, number one, I would encourage um, one of the weird themes that came up in my research and I've been using clinically ever since was there are certain environments where the technology is more destructive than in other environments. Um, one is when you're in the car together. Uh, I would encourage every couple on the planet to unilaterally decide we're not going to be looking at phones when we're in the car together. Um, now, if you're changing a song, if you're whatever, that's that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I had I had such a prevalent existence of these stories of well, we used to talk in the car and now we don't. We used to the car was always you're it's a it's a captive audience. Um, and we don't really bond over those things anymore. So I would encourage couples to, to, to rid their cars of social media. Second, to keep it out of the bedroom. Um, I, I understand that even couples who agree that, well, we can lay in bed. What's the difference in laying in bed and watching a TV show together or laying in bed and looking at our phones together? And the answer is one is a shared experience. The other one is two separate and isolated experiences. Um, so one of the reasons why my wife and I watching some weird Netflix documentary 
the reason that that doesn't qualify as being the same type of distraction that social media does is number one, because the dopamine effect is completely different. Um, and then number two, because that Netflix documentary that we watched is a shared experience. And when it's over, we'll inevitably look at each other and say, that was crazy. And then we'll pause throughout the course of it. Now, granted, uh, my wife will tell you she has a very love-hate relationship watching any documentary with me. Because if it's, <laughs> if it's a two-hour documentary, I know this won't surprise you, it takes five hours for us to get through it. Because I'm going to pause it and I'm going to say, okay, <laughs> here's what I think. What do you think? And then we have to have this long. And there's plenty of times where she'll look at me and say, I think we should just finish the documentary. Um, <laughs> that is what I think. That uh, is my thought right now. Yeah, that's what I, I I hear that a lot. And my thought is, no, we have to solve it first. We have to figure out what the problem is here. And here's why that person's crazy. So we, <laughs> we get into these, we get into these whole big things. Reality television is the worst. It's, uh, I don't like it. My wife has a little, she has some guilty pleasures in reality television. She'll turn it off if I walk in the room. Cause I apparently ruined the experience. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Anyway, so so keeping it out of the bedroom, a shared experience is better than an unshared experience. So if I am if I'm watching yeah. a movie, if I'm watching a show um, with my wife, it's a shared experience. We don't have to say anything. Um, we but you know what we've had to do. We've had to agree that we're going to watch this because it's something that interests both of us. Um, we both had the same input, and then we're both kind of in the same place. Um, and I know, look, having a TV on with a, with a couple is not ideal anyway. Uh, but it's way better to me than I'm on my feed, you're on your feed, and we're in totally separate universes. Um, so I would encourage uh, keeping it out of the car, keeping it out of the bedroom. And I would also encourage, of course, and this is kind of the, the, the first place a lot of people go, keeping it away from the dinner table. Um, and look, mm-hmm. I know even the concept of the dinner table, um, there's those air quotes. It's a dying thing. Yeah, it's a dying thing. It's kind of an antiquated concept, but, um, but it, man, it shouldn't be. Uh, the dinner table should still be a bonding experience. And so even if, even if the dinner table is the ottoman in the living room, um, I still would encourage couples to keep phones away from it. And when I say keep phones away from it, um, the weird thing is what the science says about the existence of a cell phone is that the cell phone doesn't have to be on to detract from the intimacy between two people. So if we're having dinner together, if, if, if we're, the two of us are having dinner together if my phone is on the table, even if it's not on, when that conversation's over, if we were to take an intimacy evaluation, which there are numerous studies that have done this, it doesn't matter whether the phone was on or off. Intimacy is, is uh, lowered by the existence, the sheer existence of a cell phone. Because here's what a cell phone existing between the two of us indicates. It indicates you better be entertaining because at any second I could bail on this conversation. Hmm. Um, and that was actually a story. I, I, I interviewed a guy for my dissertation, um, who they'd been married 40 plus years. Uh, and he said up until about 10 years ago, he said, I never felt pressure to be entertaining. Um, and he said, but now I'm with my wife who I love. I know her. We've been married since we were kids. They had been married at 18 and 21. That's how old they were when they got married. Um, he said, we've been married since we were kids. We, we know each other inside and out. We can talk about anything. But now for the first time over the last eight to 10 years, since she got really into Facebook, um, I've started to notice at dinner, if I don't have something good to talk about, or if I'm quiet for more than a minute, she picks up her phone and it's over. Um, and I'm not going to I'm not going to talk to her again. So keeping mm-hmm. making the commitment, I'm going to keep the cell phone out of those areas uh, would be really important. I'm leaving one out. The, the research 
actually talked about the living room too. That was a theme that came up. The reason I leave that one out is because when I tell couples, knowing knowing the car, knowing the bedroom, knowing the kitchen, knowing the living room, their response is, well, when can we look at our phones? And, and where yeah, shall we view them? The bathroom, like a normal human being. <laughs> I, my answer to that question, I don't think the women are going to be for this. We already have a hard time getting our husbands out of said bathroom. We're not sending them in to look at the cell phone, okay? That's just not happening. No, I got it. I got it. I no, need that one too. My answer, the answer, to my, answer to that question, well, so when can we look at our phones? Number one is I want you to pause for a second at the fact that you're asking me that question, that you're so upset that you can't have your phone in the living room, in the kitchen, in the bedroom, and in the car, that you're, you're well, where else is there? The answer is when you're not with your family, that's the answer. All right. So, mm-hmm. so we have a rule in my house. I've got a, a, an almost nine-year-old and I've got a five-year-old. Um, my wife and I have a rule in our house. Um, now I don't, I don't know that, that everybody is going to want to take this step, but for those who really legitimately want to do something uh, substantial, uh, here's a rule in our house. Um, no devices can be used in a room with another person. All right. Now I, so I'm going to take that to an extreme. If I get a text message and I want to look at it and respond to it and my kids are in the room, I need to leave the room. Now, the reason we do that is because you are all, you're mentally leaving. So we're going to make you physically leave too. I don't want this to just be a mental checkout. You're going to have to physically check out too, to show and exemplify the fact that you have now left the room. Um, You know, what's interesting as a parent, you walk out on your kid's playroom two or three times to take a text message. It'll be really obvious how often you're doing it. It makes it really right. tangible. It makes it really powerful. Um, uh, we have a big giant back deck at our house. It's like my favorite place. It's my happy place. Um, walking mm-hmm. off that deck to respond to an email or to or to just look and check news. Walking off the deck to go inside because my wife's outside with me is powerful. It's a it's a visual it's a visual tangible physical representation of what you're already mentally doing. And you're talking about an idea that um, one of our, it's it's part of our core values at Aspen House, um, our, our practice. And then um, it, it's just a big deal to Kimberly and I is congruence. And what you're doing is you're, you're asking people to be behaviorally congruent with what they're doing on the inside. If you're, if you're moving away from the connection internally, emotionally, mentally, then go ahead and move away behaviorally and let's make it a congruent experience, which is going to bring about some awareness, which is what that should do as to what's really happening in your relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Okay. I want to, uh, because as we could talk about this for hours, I can already tell, but I want to move into more specifically families. You've kind of, you've kind of started bridging in that direction. Um, you've done a ton of great work with families. You have an incredible website that we're going to, um, uh, put in the show notes for everybody. Um, let's talk about what you're learning about the impact of technology on families. What's your biggest concern, um, for families, um, parents raising kids in a, in a very technological world? My biggest concern is dopamine related. Um, my biggest concern is that the real world just doesn't compete with the digital world. Um, so, so to give, to give it, it, you and I, or the three of us on this this call have a working understanding of dopamine. But for those who don't, uh, dopamine is the thing that drives you towards things you like. Um, it's it's uh, the elementary definition is it's the it's the payoff uh, for 
things that we enjoy. Uh, now that's not a scientific definition because it's actually, it happens before the payoff, but, but, but to give people a working understanding, dopamine is what drives your behavior. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a book that you guys may be familiar with. If you're interested in, in this, there's a book called the molecule of more, which is the most outstanding dopamine related book I've ever read. Cause it made it really digestible. Right. Um, but the idea that I'm most concerned about is, um, our phones are conditioning us to a dopaminergic experience that the analog world can't replicate. Um, so in other words, you have something in your life that is creating a sense of, of what you perceive to be happiness. Now it's not happiness, uh, but what you perceive to be peace. Um, it's not like joy. It's this sense. It's more of a sense of, of calm and like, it's like an addict who gets their fix. It's not, you don't, there's no joy in it. There's just the relief of anxiety. Um, yeah, that, it's a reward chemical right. in the body. Right. Okay. So, so the idea is um, because our phones are, are creating an expectation of, of dopaminergic experience that the real world can't keep up with, when I've spent an hour looking at a phone, that whatever conversation I'm going to have next is going to be way more boring than whatever I just did on my phone. Um, so I'll give you an example of, of, of what this, I give you a, a representation of what this might look like. Um, you imagine a day without a cell phone and your dopamine level is sitting around a three or a four. Cause that's just a normal person. Um, throughout the course of a day, you're going to have spikes, but those spikes are going to be, you had a, somebody told a joke that you thought was funny, or you enjoyed a conversation with another human being and you have spikes that go up to seven or eight. Um, and then it goes back down to three or four and then you come home and it's, Hey, how you doing? Spike of three or four, uh, seven or eight. So you have these spikes throughout the course of a day, a cell phone being in your face all day is going to maintain this dopamine level at like a seven or an eight. And so now the spike that you would get from an interaction with a human being is not nearly as impactful. Uh, so mm. it's why, so it's why I say that it's making us less happy with the people around us. Um, uh, one of the most heartbreaking stories I ever heard. Um, and oddly enough, I've heard it more than once, um, talking to parents who confess behind closed doors and without their kids in the room. And when it's just me and them listening to parents, and by the way, they will never confess this in front of their spouse, Uh, but having them confess when it's just me and an individual parent in the room that their kids just aren't a lot of fun that they don't, they would, they don't really enjoy going out to play with them and they don't really enjoy going into the playroom to play with them. And they don't really enjoy interacting with them in the way that they always thought they would. And they have guilty feelings about this. Um, you know, Mm -hmm. this is not something they're happy with. It's the reason they're sitting on my couch. Um, what's interesting is uh, my question is always the same. Okay. What are you, a, what are you doing instead? And B in those moments where they want your attention, what is it you're doing already? And I'm telling you, and this is an anecdotal number, but my estimation would be 90% of the time, the answer is phone related. I'm I'm either, I'm on my phone and I don't want to get up and play. Or when I, when I get bored with them, I go get on my phone. Um, And the reason I say that is because my response to parents in that situation is it doesn't sound like you have a kid problem. And it doesn't sound like you just, you uh, ended up with the most boring kids in the world. It sounds like you're, your dopamine expectations are digital and your kids aren't digital. Uh, they're humans mm-hmm. they're kids, and they can't keep up with your phone. Um, so my solution for every parent in that situation, number one is a digital fast in the home. Um, and then let's reevaluate how much you enjoy your kids. 
Now there's a mm-hmm. way we do that. We don't just go home and say, okay, stop looking at your phone. Uh, that weirdly is like telling people struggling with their weight to just stop eating unhealthy food. Uh, not super effective. So there's a way that we get into it. But um, um, yeah, it's a, the, the parallel between those two realities is really stark. And, and I'm, you're, you're talking about something, I'm going to use language that we use in our uh, trauma-informed kind of world when we're talking about like our capacity to handle stimulation and, and emotional experiences and whatnot. Um, when people have things in their background or eating up that space, they have less margin. And right. what I'm hearing from you is like our our technology and our screen time and all of that is eating up all the margin. Right. So there's there's no room for there to be movement and to feel that. Right which is kind of the flavor of life. Like you, right. you can't do it when your margins are eaten up. Ryan, do you ever get pushback or argument um, from parents saying, hey, but I need to expose or allow technology to help my kid because they're going to have to navigate this world, which is so technologically focused and it's the way of the future. And if you do get that pushback, what's your response? Yeah, I get it. That's my, my response is I get it. Yeah, you're right. Look, I, I'm not, I'm not, my, my, my message is never to go home, throw your devices in a pond and then go dig a cave and hide in it until good times come. <laughs> I love that you used pond. I mean, you could have used trash can like everybody else, but you went with pond. I went with okay. pond. I went with pond. Uh, it really, that seems more effective, right? Cause not only are we throwing them away, we're destroying them. <laughs> so let's go back to our sex therapy for just a second. Uh, I'm going to use language from that world. My goal is not abstinence. My goal is safety. Uh, my goal is, my goal is digital, it's digital safety and it's, but yes, I'm raising two small children in this world. They are going to have to navigate the digital world. Um, they don't need to be devoid of technology, but they need to use it in a constructive way. Um, and I'll give you an example of, of how I would view it as constructive versus destructive, Uh, a constructive use of technology for kids is to use it for creation. Okay, here's a fun here's a fun little uh, anecdote for your for your audience. We don't have internet access at our house, which makes me sound so virtuous and so like like oh wow he's really committed to this. No, it's you are so digitally virtuous, Ryan. Oh, I know I'm very digitally virtuous. It's also I have called AT and T every month for six years, hoping we can get it. But we live out in the middle of nowhere, so we don't have access to the internet. It's not that we do this on purpose. I love your transparency about this. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm going to be very honest about this. I would love to have some Wi-Fi access at my house, uh, but I don't. So, But I get to say in presentations, well, now me and my kids don't have internet access. <laughs> so you people do what you want to do. Now, all right. So, so, so what are you guys like? Are you guys like hotspotting it out there or oh, what? Oh, you know, yes. It's, 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 <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, we have hotspots and we have... Um, we have uh, connected devices. So like their iPad is on a plan. It's a whole big mess. Um, now it has worked to our advantage because I, we, and I would not allow my kids to play online games. Um, I would not allow my kids. And I know everybody, I get pushback from parents about like, well, but the, all of their kids are playing Fortnite. I, I, I don't care. Um, to me, I don't, if you're going to play online digitally, uh, you make sure there is no ability for your kids to communicate audibly with other kids. Uh, as research, I play video games. Oh, hold on, hold on. What about written? 
What about written? Oh, no. Any ability to communicate with other kids in an uncontrolled environment like that. um, I say kids. It's not not just other kids. The ability to communicate with other gamers in an uncontrolled environment is not a safe thing for children. Um, so another, another fun, transparent thing about me is that I play video games myself. I am the first generation of adult men who never put down our game controls. Uh, so I do, I do these things, but, but it's, so it's not about, again, it's not about abstinence. It's about control. Okay. Side note, my ADHD is kicking in. Um, (laughs) side note, I've been on those gamer forums with a headset and I've never wanted, I, I, half my conversation is put your mother on, put your, put your mother on. Cause I need, she needs to know what you just said to me. She needs to know what you're doing. Yeah, where are your parents? Your where are your parents? All right. So to go back to what the pushback, I'm going to go back to your original question, the pushback on, but my kids grow up in a digital world. All right. So some positive uses for technology and kids is construction. Uh, my kids use their iPad to record music in GarageBand. Um, because they can do a lot of music editing in that they can create drum loops. They can create instruments. There's digital instruments. They can essentially do, they can create music from nothing on GarageBand and they don't have to be musically inclined or know how to play an instrument to do that. Um, another thing that my kids do a game that I'm very okay with my kids playing is Minecraft. Um, now I don't like the online components of Minecraft, but Minecraft Mm -hmm. is essentially a big digital sandbox. Um, yeah, I, I am okay with the creation in a big digital sandbox. Now, I don't like there's a mode you can play where there's zombie attacks and all that stuff. I prefer creative mode for little kids. As they get older, I'm not as opposed to the the, the combat mode as you might expect. But the idea is I want to play games that where the, the dopaminergic experience for kids is not super fast. Um, here's a rule for parents. My kids don't at any point now play games on an, on a device, on an iPad for more than 10 minutes. Um, I know that sounds crazy. Their limits on their consoles are way less. There are way more. Their limits on a, on an iPad are really small. And the reason for that is because in addition to the fact that iPad games are designed to be dopaminergic, so they'll keep you there. There are so many options that if they don't, if they kind of lose interest, they can swipe off and open another one which creates this unrealistic expectation. Mm-hmm. They don't stay in anything. Right. Whereas console games, if you want to turn off your Switch game, you have to close down the, the, the game. You have to pull out another game. You have to load it. You have to. There's a whole big process involved, so they're more committed to the games that they're playing. Um, yeah. So I'm not... Again, Does that I, include, just for clarity, like GarageBand? Is it a 10-minute ten, ten limit no, on GarageBand? No, no, no. Band no, create... No, a great question. If they're... That's, I don't consider that gaming. Um, I didn't know if I didn't think so, but I wanted to clarify. No. So creative, constructive uses for the iPad do not have the same types of time limits. Now they do Mm -hmm. have time limits. I don't want my kids even on GarageBand all day. Uh, Mm -hmm. But things like creation in GarageBand, um, there are uh, uh, coding apps that kids can use that I have no issue with. Uh, There are uh, puzzle apps. Now I prefer... Uh, on puzzle apps, I prefer actual puzzles, but I mean, when I say puzzle apps, kind of the old fashioned puzzle that you and I are thinking of, but there's, there's problem solving apps. So there's one, the woodblock type game where you, it's, it's like Tetris problem solving. Um, those types of games are, are completely different to me, but when it comes to iPad gaming, where they've got a tank and they're supposed to blow something up, you got 10 minutes after 10 minutes, it's mine and you're done for the day. Um, I started to notice, and, and I think most parents can relate to this, 
I started to notice that if they were on their iPads for more than like 15 minutes, it changed their mood. They were cranky. Uh, and I didn't like that. I think they act like a little addicts. You you talk about dopamine and getting really hooked on that. I honestly believe that they act like little addicts. Um, I mean, I am, I'm a parent of a three, almost four year old and an eight year old that has gone through the pandemic experience like everybody else. And yes, screen time went up. Like we were all surviving as best we could. Um, and then we, we reined that back in to a degree because my, specifically my younger, um, son was, he just acted like a little addict at the end of the day. Yeah. And I was like, you are, wow. you are just so, Crazy, right? just so unha- nothing. And in the way you describe it now, it makes so much sense. Nothing could have made him happy. His no. margins were all gone. Correct. And so I, we created this impossible to please child by doing that all day and then expecting him to like be delighted with human interaction and dinner and all those other things at the end of the day. Well, so, so to take that idea a, a step further, there's a piece of information, there's a piece of data that came out in the research that is kind of scary. And that is that for every hour per day that a kid engages with digital technology, uh, it's been correlated in the preschool age years. So from zero to five, uh, it's been correlated with a 10% increase every hour per day on average that a kid engages with digital technology, which includes TV, by the way. Um, it's correlated to a 10% increase in the likelihood of an ADHD diagnosis um, in, in those first four years of, of elementary school. And the reason for that is not because it's breaking their brains. The reason for that is because they're conditioned to be in control of stuff. So when when I was a kid, and I'm going to sound like an old man for just a second, when I was a kid, um, the idea that you could record live television involved a contraption called a VHS, and then you had to know how to program yeah. it, and that was never going to happen. <laughs> And so, and so I remember vividly uh, being interrupted. My mom made us leave in the middle of the full house episode where uncle Jesse was riding his motorcycle on top of the building. And I never saw the end of that episode and it drove me nuts. And the reason I never saw it is because uh, the TV did its thing and I had to adjust to the TV Um, in the world that, that kids are growing up in now it's the other way around. So I had to, when music came out, I had to go to tower records and pay $14 for a CD um, when a movie came out, you had to wait till you went to the theater and watched it. And I say all that because there were all these things put in place for us as kids that reminded us that the world doesn't adjust to us. We have to adjust to the world. So it created flexibility. It created pliability. But now, yeah. especially with an iPad, if my, my oldest son is obsessed with Imagine Dragons. Within about 30 minutes of recognizing that he liked Imagine Dragons, he had their entire library uh, put onto his iTunes. Um, that It required nothing of him other than to just click it. So he's in total control of that. He's in total control. He doesn't, he does not understand the concept of live television. If we're watching something live and there's a commercial, he says the same thing. Every kid says, skip it. Like, I can't, you like, it's not, no, skip it. I'm like, no, it's on live. Like there's towers and there's like, I'm having to explain the concept of live television. So I, I say all that because as you've gotten rid of all of these little moments, that helped kids learn that they needed to ad- adapt to the world and replaced them with moments where they don't. Yeah. It's not a surprise that they go to kindergarten and a teacher slides a, a particular uh, assignment across the desk and says, we need you to get this done. Well, I don't want to do that. 
Well, so ADHD diagnoses in early elementary kids is not necessarily a brain issue. It's a, it's I, they want to swipe off their teacher a in the conditioning can. issue. Yeah. yeah, they want to it, swipe we've off. conditioned it. They want to swipe off the assignment. They want to swipe off the book. They want to swipe off the teacher, and they can't do that. And so then they mm-hmm. have these really destructive behaviors because they don't know how to handle that because they're not used to handling those things. Um, yeah. So all that said, so there's a counterpoint to that. So 10% increase in the likelihood of ADHD diagnosis. The good news is. For every hour per day that a kid engages in cognitive activities, cognitive activities being Legos, um, playing with a brother or sister, going outside. Uh, for every hour per day that, that they engage in those behaviors, there's a 30% decrease in that same likelihood. So here's the, here's the takeaway. The takeaway is, is my kids can have iPads and they can watch TV. Um, it's fine. It's not the end of the world. I have a, a, my youngest son really, if I took away his Peppa Pig, he would be upset with me. I would like to take away his Peppa Pig because he's picking up on British slang, which is really weird. He calls it sun cream. And I'm like, no, dude, that's sunscreen. (laughs) He asked me to, this summer, he asked me if I would go find his swimming costume. I was like, no, that's not, that's, it's swimming trunks. Talk normal. So um, uh, uh, kids can have digital exposure. What they can't have is exclusively digital exposure. If you're going to be intentional about giving them an iPad or intentional about letting them play Switch, you need to be intentional about sticking your kid in their playroom and then you not guiding their activity and let them be creative. Make them engage in cognitive play that is self-driven. If you can do that for young kids, an hour of video game time, I got no problem with. It's all about balance. It's it's about ensuring that, that technology doesn't take over. It can supplement but don't take, don't let it take over. We're the first generation of parents in history that have to make our kids go outside and play. Uh, yeah. That's really important. Um, and we need to do that. We need to take responsibility as parents to do that. Okay. So I have a follow-up question and then um, Kimberly's going to ask about one of the things that you have gifted the world. Um, I, I am listening to this. I'm feeling appropriately challenged, um, which I, I can't imagine a parent not feeling challenged, like being, you know, hearing this information and that's good. That's, that's how we grow. Um, also think it's very validating and I want to draw attention to like, we are one of the first generations of parents because there wasn't a handbook for this for a long time. And Mm -hmm. so we're, we're, we're kind of trying to do some course correction and, I know that my family really tried really hard. Like we, we actually made some pretty big technology fights and as a mother, um, and I will speak for my husband, a father going through the pandemic Mm. and, and, and I, um, I'm happy to share this on air. Like I, I do fall in high risk categories. And so we are a family making some really careful choices, like, because I am that person. Mm -hmm. So, um, we have, um, allowed technology to increase. My daughter is doing virtual school. So I'm, and we've done some things that like, you know, we have blue light glasses, like everybody has a pair in the house. Everybody has, but there, there is a reality to, um, how the pandemic has impacted everybody and the survival. And so I'm just wondering if you have words of wisdom and maybe encouragement for the parents who are listening who are, you know, in this experience going, I, I just, I don't know if I could do it better right now. No, I I got it. So right out of the gate, my, my first, before I get to the advice part, my first, the first thing I would say is I I completely understand. 
Um, nobody's nobody's made choices uh, to increase their their digital footprint right now on purpose. That's happened to literally everyone. Uh, my I also my son was doing online school for a while. Um, mm-hmm. We're not now, but he he did online school for those first six weeks. Um, yeah, they're in, they're in more zoom calls than I was. Uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're in, I get it. Uh, I don't want parents to feel like they're, they're failing their children because their kids are engaged in more technology now than normal. Um, I also don't want parents of teenagers to feel like the ship already sailed. Um, if you'd have told me this when they were 10, maybe we could have had a different outcome. But now it, I, there's no chance. Uh, there's no way to undo this. My response is, okay, yeah, there's no way to undo whatever's wherever you're at now, but there's definitely a way to change course. Our entire profession is built around the idea that with awareness comes a change in behavior, and with that change in mm-hmm. behavior comes a healthier living. Um, we don't do away and pretend that we didn't experience damage from previous trauma or previous experiences, but we try to live better, and we try to... Um, course correct as life goes on. Um, mm-hmm. so if you're in that boat now, it's fine. I get it. We all are in that boat to some degree. Um, here's what I would encourage you to do. If you feel like, I don't think I can, I can decelerate now. Uh, my advice would be, if you feel like it's a problem in your family, if you feel like, um, your interaction is limited because everyone's engaged in their technology. If you feel like it's cre- it's infiltrated your, your intimacy in a way that you're not happy with, then just start with some really, really small things. Um, decide that you're going to remove technology from one particular environment. Uh, decide that you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna actually stick to the digital bedtime where all the devices go away at 8 o'clock. Um, decide that you're going to, I don't know, there's a whole plan of stuff that I'm sure we're going to talk about here in just a second. Pick one thing um, and try to make small incremental change. Um, I'm not... I'm not blind to the fact that being digitally, uh, being digitally um, abstinent right now is just not possible. Uh, I get it, um, but that doesn't mean we can't do better than we've done, and it doesn't mean that we can't ensure that we're doing it as safely as possible. So um, the analogy I've always made is I don't worry as much about the future as I do about the current, um, the current group of kids and families, and the reason for that is because we're having this conversation right now because a lot of people are talking about digital safety and they're talking about the, the, the dark side of social media. That's a normal conversation now. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't five years ago or six years ago or seven years ago. So yeah. I feel like we're, we're beginning this stage where we, you know, cars were on the road for 60 years before anybody put a seatbelt in them. Um, so for 60 years, there was no way to keep a person in a vehicle. You just kind of deal with it. Like, nah, whatever happens, happens. Uh, and, (laughs) and now, um, for the listeners, Jenna almost spit out her water. Well, that's what happened. We had no digital, we're people just driving down the road and there was no way to keep you secured. And it was 60 years before somebody said, Hey, we should probably make that safer. Uh, and then we figured out how to do it. And I think the same thing is, is happening digitally. We're getting parental controls and things like your, things like your, uh, if you're an Apple user like me, your weekly screen time report, um, which by the way, for the first three months of this pandemic, my weekly time report basically on Sundays would pop up and go like, Hey, you okay? 
Like, you just, <laughs> like, like everything okay at home? Because it seems like you're doing a lot more phone stuff right now. Uh, I get very angry at that report. Like, I'm I almost know. my Apple Watch. Like, get out of my watch. I don't want to yeah. see that. Well, I get mad at that. And I also, with my watch, I had to turn off those little things that would say, like, hey, you should get up and move around. And like, hey, you haven't closed your activity ring. My watch was basically like, just wave your arm around at least. Pretend you're doing something. <laughs> my, at one point, it was like, it's time to breathe. And I was like, you breathe. Yeah, I don't want to breathe uh-huh. right now. You breathe. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. Give me hard to breathe when I stuff you in my pocket. All right. <laughs> so, so I don't even remember what we were talking about. But the idea is we've all kind of, things have turned south for a lot of people in this uh, particular situation. Here, here, just make small incremental change. Um, if you, you know what I've discovered over the course of the last few months, I've discovered um, how much I enjoy reading actual books. Uh, I've discovered how much I enjoy quiet. Do you realize, and this is for most people, I think this is true. There's how little time you have in your day where you don't have some direct actual stimulus. It's shocking. Uh, you can't go 30 seconds or a minute without there's a TV on, even if you're not watching it, it's there and it's on, or there's a podcast or there's a, a, a song or there's, there's always something happening. Um, so take back quiet, man. Quiet is amazing. Um, no digital stimulus uh, for, for 30 minutes, 30 minutes, 30 minutes of that right there, that one small change, and then go back to all the dysfunctional stuff. That's fine. But for 30 minutes, man, enjoy your day, enjoy your life, enjoy your surroundings and the people you live with. Ryan, one of the gifts that you've given to the world amongst many that you've given to us today is your um, family technology contract. And I think our listeners need to know about this and how to use this and would just love you to describe that and talk about it and how to use it. And we'll obviously link to it in the show notes. but. Um, we would be just remiss if we didn't have that gift um, in our hands. Um, from well, so I am a, uh, I'm a very hands-on, I want to do stuff therapist. In fact, that was the thing that got in the way of my therapy a lot. I was that therapist who would sit in the room and be thinking like, okay, what, how are we going to fix it? Which as both of you know, is not the way a counselor should be sitting in a room. Yeah. <laughs> but I had, I, I had to fight that. I had to fight that urge of like, okay, I hear your problem, but now let me give you a solution. Um, so that was my biggest struggle early in my career. Um, and I still do that, but now it's just with the people I care about and like, so, um, not clients, by the way, that was a comment about my family. I working <laughs> half my clients. You know, uh, everybody who's going to listen to the show is now going to go, okay, I wonder if Ryan likes me. Oh, am I in that like category? Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. All right. So, um, in the technology world though, I went into it with the same thing. There's all this research about what technology does and how it can be problematic. But man, there's not a lot of solutions. There's not a lot of, so what do I do now? Other than, well, make a lot of changes. Best of luck. Uh, and so my my goal was to try and do something tangible. Uh, and so a couple of years ago, I created something called a family technology plan. Um, it is, uh, it's done in menu format. So in other words, you've got a, uh, a, a trifold menu. And it's, by the way, it's on paper. Um, and there's, it's on paper for a reason. Uh, but the idea is, uh, it is not just a contract, it's a conversation. And that's the most important part of it. It's not meant to be a hard and fast set of rules. Now there are some commitments you're going to make to each other. There's even a section for how to handle it when someone doesn't hold to their commitments. 
Um, but the goal is not to have this ironclad set of rules. The goal is to have a conversation about what do we want? What are our expectations for technology? And then what can we do for each other that lets us know um, that uh, I'm working, that I'm trying? Um, and that's what the technology plan is supposed to be. The biggest word of caution that I would give people is if you are the one lone member of your family who believes that technology is a problem, so you find the technology plan and you're going to kick in the door and say, here's what we're doing, and you're going to ask everybody to commit to it, it's going to be an awful experience. This has to be a mutual, a shared conversation where everyone gets a voice, everyone's voice is respected, including children. Um, so parents, be willing to let your kids say, yeah, okay, I would like for you to not post any pictures of me until you've shown them to me first. Because uh, I, I don't want the picture of me dancing in my underwear you thought was cute. I'm super embarrassed by that. Um, the picture of, of me in my pajamas and because and something goofy happened, you thought it was funny and cute and bonding, but I like that affects my feelings of my social status and my social standing. So please don't do that without my consent. Um, or even saying... Yeah, I would like for you to get off your phone and talk to me and play with me. Mm -hmm. Parents, be open to hearing that kind of a conversation. So what it does, it goes. there's a section for parents. There's a section for kids. There's a section even for goals. Like, what do we want our technology to be? Um, mm -hmm. I want, so let me answer that question. You know what I want my technology to be in my house? I want it to be educational. Um, I want it to be entertaining in a non-destructive way. Uh, and I want it to be connecting. Uh, now, those are very intentional uh, uh, words that I'm using. And we have a plan for how to, how to make it look like those things. Uh, and it all came from the technology plan. It came from us discussing with each other what things were going to look like and how we wanted things to go. Um, mm -hmm. the, 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 there's three different versions of it online. Um, there's a PDF version. Uh, well, there's two PDF versions and a Word version. Um, the way that, that it's formatted, I gave you some, some like easy starter points, right? So mm -hmm. some of the ones I just said are on the technology plan, but there's also totally blank ones. Um, and there's even one that is, is, is the word document is a word document so that you can edit it yourself. Uh, my goal is, is to, is to help families, um, engage in a, in a more meaningful way. Now, there's a video that goes with it um, where uh, I look way younger and don't have nearly as much gray in my beard. Uh, so there's a video that goes with it that explains what it is. So watch the video. Uh, and then there's an article um, that goes with it as well. And if you to find it, you say creating a family technology plan. You click on that on the top of the website. There is one thing I want to specify. Um, I'm not, nothing is behind a paywall. I'm not selling this. It's free to anyone who goes to the website. Uh, the goal for me is, is, to, um, is to try as best I can to help families pull their heads out of their phones. And I know you probably worried where that sentence was going. To pull their, head, pull their heads out of their phones. Could, could be both. It could be both. It could be both. Um, could be sand. Okay. It could be sand. I, I am trying. So I am a... Um, 
I am a, I'm a working marriage and family therapist who sees clients every single day. I have been doing research in this field for just shy of a decade on technology and the way it impacts our Mm -hmm. relationships for just shy of a decade now. And you have no idea how hard it is in these conversations for me to repress my true concern for where we're going, because I don't want people to tune me out because they think I'm being an alarmist. Um, but, but if there, but if you want a testament to how much I believe in this, I'm not charging anybody anything for anything on the website. It's all free. Just use it. Uh, please use it to help change your family. Um, and a lot of people have said to me that, well, I did, yeah, free now. And it's probably why you're getting driving people to the website and then you're going to stick it behind a paywall. Well, it's been up for eight years now. Uh, we've made modifications, we've made modifications to it, um, and tried to keep it relevant as things have changed, but no, I'm not, I'm not charging for this, man. I just want people to use it so that they can, uh, have a functional conversation. And the reason for that, my kids are going to grow up with your kids. And so I'm trying to make sure that that goes well for everybody. Yeah. We're attending to context here. Uh, we will have all of that in the show notes. Um, Ryan, you are, uh, such a gift to the world. Uh, we always close with these two questions. Okay. So, uh, what would you like the audience to take away from our conversation today? What would you like to leave them with? Um, it, this all sounds huge, but the biggest change is going to be when you make small, simple, incremental things. Um, the, the, the thing that I want more than anything is please don't be overwhelmed by how potentially negative some of these things are to the point that you shut down and think, well, mm-hmm. this is too big for me. Um, the biggest takeaway to me is I give a whole bunch of stuff with the hope that you'll grab one or two little things. Um, so that's it. This is small, manageable, little baby steps. And I think when you see how impactful those couple of small little things were, um, I think you'll be more motivated to yeah. want to do some of the bigger things. Yeah. Final question. What was your takeaway from our conversation today? Oh, I probably should have read that in the, in the, in the, uh, interview prep. (laughs) What was my takeaway from our conversation today? Um, this is the first, I want to say this is the first podcast I've done in, in probably, probably since June. Um, my biggest takeaway is I need to really strongly uh, consider the impact of the of the start of school um, and the digital impact that that has had on a lot of families. Um, Jenna, you posed the question, I think, um, uh, and I think you mentioned online school specifically. Uh, and, and I realized that, you know, yeah. I've got some anecdotal evidence as to how it's gone and, and I can talk all about Rockwall ISD. That's where I, my kids go to school. Um, but in terms of the, the macro level impact, um, I probably, I need to pay more attention to that. And I think that is something that I know I'm not alone in that. I think for parents to take a deep breath and to recognize how technology has changed in your family since August um, mm-hmm. will probably benefit every family on the planet because my guess is you'll probably end with the idea that, okay, I can't change how much time they have to spend during the day online. So I'm going to make sure that their reward is not video games, um, that I'm going to really try hard to put in cognitive, less stimulating engagement. Um, your kids are going to fight that, by the way. I, I'm going to go back to your first question of what's the main takeaway. If you make any change digitally, your family's going to fight it initially. Um, parenting is not easy. 
uh, and and my encouragement to you is to make that change anyway. And even when they fight and when they push back and when they act like you're you're um, taking away all of their freedom, um, do what's best for your kid, even if your kid doesn't agree. Ryan, thank you so much. This has been such a gift of a conversation to me personally as a parent, but I know to our audience. And so we thank you for your your work um, that you've invested in and sharing that with us today and um, all of these nuggets of information and encouragement and validation as we do this really hard thing um, in relationships with technology mm-hmm. and trying to do that well. So thank you so much. Th- thank you. It's I want to have here. you, friend. Oh, listen, Jen, it's always good to see you. Uh, but before I before I let you guys go, I do want to say this. I, as a clinician who sees a lot of clinics and works with a lot of people, um, what you guys are doing in your practice is really, really solid. And I want the people who, I, Jenna, you and I go way back, but I'm not saying this because we go way back. What you guys are doing clinically um, is amazing. Uh, I will shamelessly plug because <laughs> I've seen the, the level of professionalism um, that you guys have implemented. And I've seen the creativity with which you guys have engaged with this field. And I know you as clinicians, um, th- I, I, I would gladly, and with, with a very clear conscience and happiness would refer my own family. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you guys for working as hard as you have to, to, to speak to the needs of our current culture. Thank you, friends. So good you having you. Appreciate you it. got it. All right, guys. Okay. I knew that that was going to be so much fun. Obviously, I had, you know, prior relationship with Ryan and just adore him so much. Oh, he's great. He was so much fun. Um, yeah, and I really loved kind of his takeaway there at the end, just kind of inspiring um, a new vantage point for him to be able to speak into and love on our communities, specifically in kind of the pandemic state and with family technology. Um, what was your takeaway? Um, mine, so many things, I think as a parent, um, the intentionality, I mean, as a, as a spouse, you know, just the intentionality with, um, I loved how he described how aware we become if we put in some structure. So like he leaves the room to go and text or, or check in on something. And so, Oh, totally. That was so challenging for me. I was like, what a great way to behave. Oh, really? like, when I walk out of the room. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, but then I, you know, his, he was so kind and so gracious. And I think, um, in a, in a time where we probably need that, you know, but he didn't let us off the hook, you know, mm-hmm. we need to be intentional. Mm-hmm. But he also was able to note that we're probably all on our devices a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's something for all of us to do there, you know, yeah. whether it's going to look like it would before this pandemic reality where we're all together more in the same home or um, currently, there's something that we can do, you know, yeah. even if it's just a contract and sitting down with our kids and talking about accountability and, you know, being flexible to change that when the times are different. Um, I loved how he held our feet to the fire while also being very kind and gracious and able to name reality, which is just a really good, complex balance there in the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, um, 
like two two main buckets. I, I guess the first one is I would just like to acknowledge the type of leadership that he brings to a conversation. And you've you've touched on some of those, so I won't hang out here too long. But he was um, just because he cares about you and the human sitting across from you, or in in this case, the listener, the humanity of the listener and their very real experience. Like there is compassion there, but he doesn't hold back on truth. Like he still said, but here's how it is. Um, he kept it complex. That's something that you and I value mm-hmm. um, just in our personal lives, but also like in leadership. I think when we get oversimplified and he could have gone there and I've, I've listened to other people in the technology, you know, the space that he's in I, kind of oversimplifying. He's, no, it's not all games. It's these types of games do this and these types of games. I mean, he just kept it so complex, which I appreciate. Um, and he was vulnerable. Like I appreciated his vulnerability, you know, his transparency, um, and his humor. And so like, there's just the type of leader that he is in the world. I really do appreciate. So that was kind of the one thing, um, I guess I just want to throw out there, but I think my biggest takeaway, um, and it probably is just this, um, my own personal experience of the shift in technology as a family, that has moved through the pandemic experience is that there are um, there are ways to nurture and counteract um, the hit that the brain takes when it is on screens and technology and games and social you know media type things um, that we can do for our kids and it it is almost just as important, if not more important to maybe right now pay attention to that and, and carving mm. out that space rather than just focusing on, I have to stop doing this. I have to stop doing this. I have to stop doing this. It's like, actually it's just as important. You go, Hey, like if we can be intentional about this type of time, we're, 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 we're counteracting the effects of the increase of technology in our kids' lives. So I think that was the biggest one, uh, for me. Yeah. Yeah. The reframe on that, it, it wasn't just a list of stop, don't do you're a terrible person if, you know, <laughs> it was, look what we gain. We get to nurture our relationships with our families, you know, and where can we do that more? So it was, yeah, awesome. Brilliant. Thank you for joining us. Arable Podcast is hosted by Jenna Mountain and Kimberly Galindo. And edited and co-produced by Chris Vargas and hosted on Podbean. You can find us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Visit our website, arablepodcast.com, and find Arable Podcasts on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find both of us on Facebook. You can find me, Kimberly Galindo, on Instagram at the Kimberly Galindo. And me, Jenna Mountain, on Instagram at the Jenna Mountain.